Hej alla sammen, och välkommen till Framtidens näringsliv, en podcast om bærekraft och business. Jag är er Knut Mostö, producent för podcasten och marknadsansvarig för UN Global Compact Norge. Under normala omständigheter skulle den introduktion varit ganska annledes. Men ting är er ikke normala och situationen är er ikke vanlig. På grund av aktualiteten för samtalen och gästerna som deltar har vi valt att publicera episoden som en smakebit på vad som kommer i nästa uke. I samtalen träffar vi en av världens främsta experter på pandemier och vacciner och ikke minst på vilken roll näringslivet kan spille i att nå en bergasmål 3 för god helse. Seth Berkeley, den Harvard-dudande legen som har Times Magazine er kåret en av världens mest inflytelserika personer, är er administrerande direktör för den världsomspännande vaccinalliansen Gavi. Marie Sundlitveit, tidigare naturförvalter och rektor vid Norges miljö och biovetenskapliga universitet på oss, hade akkurat steppet in som direktör för politikområdet i NO. I samtalen som ledes av Kim Nogera Gabrielli, direktör för UN Global Compact Norge, får vi höra om hvordan pandemier ikke respekterer landegrenser, at Afrika er et foregangskontinent for droneleveranser, og hvor mange ägg som må til for å utvikle en influensavvaksine. Samtalen er tatt opp live fra Hotel Amerikalinjen i Oslo Centrum. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you. I mean, we we have been very, we've been trying to get the right people. So some of you have already gotten a phone call from us to make sure that you are here because we we didn't want to have a big, uh, we wanted this to be sort of an intim concert. So uh, I realized that you you wanted to have some distance to us, but still um, we are very happy to have all of you here. Um, and I'm especially pleased to have both uh, uh, Mari and Dr. Berkeley here with us, of course. Um, let me first um, give you a short introduction to the to the topic. So, uh, I mean, obviously, I need to start with you. Uh, can I say set? Yes, of yes. course. Um, since its launch in 2000, Gavi has prevented more than 13 million future deaths and helped protect over 760 million children with new and uh, new vaccines. I think that's, a, I mean, you, you heard the numbers, right? 13 million children is what they are preventing. So I think this is, we can even start with a small applause to get you started. <laughs> and of course, under your uh, leadership, the Alliance has grown to become one of the leaders uh, in the global fight against preventable diseases. Uh, and I think it's also one of the best examples, really, of the public-private cooperation that we have seen. I mean, it has been in an example for many other um, corporations like that, right, between the UN organizations, uh, the private sector. And that is, of course, also why uh, we have um, NHO with us here today. Um, I just wanted to, a couple of things about your background, because you have an, obviously, an impressive background, but um, you're not a stranger to the vaccines, nor to public advocacy, of, of course. Uh, working for several governments as an advisor, and you've also been part of creating IAVI, the international organization that has been tasked with, with new approaches to vaccines and other, uh, you know, to, to prevent HIV. Um, and I think, uh, I was thinking, uh, do we have anything in common, the Global Compact and Gavi? And of course we have. We, uh, next year we are both 20 years old, so we are quite young still, <laughs> which is good. Uh, we were also created or at least launched at the World Economic Forum. And of course, we are both this sort of n- n- uh, hybrid of companies and uh, and multilateral organizations. <coughs> so uh, I'm looking forward to get a more sort of, you know, get some juicy stuff out to you a little bit later. Uh, but before that, we also need to in- present uh, Mari Sundlitveit. And she is the, um, the head of policy at the Confederation of Norwegian Enterprise, NHO, as you all heard before. Uh, and your knowledge is on business and sustainability is simply stunning. I mean, with your background as a head of uh, the University uh, of Life Sciences and also as the chair, the national chair uh, of uh, the Council of Universities. So I think this will be a very exciting uh, conversation today. Um, and I will start 
out with you, uh, Seth. I, I think I have a nice question here that I'm going to read, and then we are going to do this more interactive going forward. So, what made you leave the robes? Or are you still sneaking into laboratory from time to time? Um, why did you decide to become a global leader? I mean, like, what is the motivation for such a thing? So, <clears throat> first of all, thanks for the question, and thanks for hosting this event. And I think what's important in however we have the conversation is I want to talk about the public-private partnership, but I also want to talk about the role of business and the important role there. But And that connects back to the answer to your question, because if you look at I no, I don't sneak into the labs anymore. I wish I did, but um, um, I'm too busy um, uh, flying around the world and, and, um, and trying to deal with this problem since we're working in over 100 countries. But what's the motivating force behind that is um, you know, we can make a dramatic difference. You've talked about some big numbers, but this is also about transforming the way countries work. And in the past, the challenge has been um, some distrust between industry and the UN that has been a problem. And, you know, if you look at the big problems that exist today, they will not be solved by the UN. They will not be solved by government. They will not be solved by civil society. They will not be solved by private sector. They will be solved by some interesting combinations of those groups working together. And so for me, this is, you know, this is how we're going to deal with these big challenges in the future. And I think Gavi, as you say, is a model for how this can happen. And of course, that's when I turn to you, uh, Mari. So uh, at the Global Compact, we, we say that uh, the SDGs, uh, yeah, they, I would say they are the, the largest or the biggest uh, business opportunity of our time. Uh, there, I mean, there have been several reports on this, but one of the late uh, UN Global Compact reports shows that there is a uh, 12 trillion USD opportun market opportunities in this. I mean, it, you know, it's just, just like when we talk about the oil fund, we don't really understand what it is about, right? But it's about 380 million uh, jobs. Um, and half of them will be coming in what we usually call the developing countries, the low and uh, middle income countries. So, so how is this an opportunity for you? And not only sort of a you know compliance something you have to do, but something you actually can earn money on in the future. Hmm. We're most certain that this is a it's a huge opportunity for the businesses, and also that was one of the things that actually inspired me to 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 go from academia and from that knowledge background and add into the business sector was was the understanding that that the business sector will have to be at the forefront of solving all these global challenges that we're facing and 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 actually be leading in doing that and and i've been with uh, the norwegian confederation of of enterprises now for three months and this is something that's uh, that keeps inspiring me every day. Uh, that's the examples and uh, that I see, and and the way that I actually see business already doing this, and in very many cases being uh, coming further along that than the politicians on many of these these issues. And this is becoming uh, not something that you ice the cake with, but something that's an integrated part of the business models. Something that's very much seen as an opportunity but not only that it's also seen as a responsibility and that's something it's something that we want to contribute to doing reaching the sustainable development goals but then the, the next question is of course so what, what is the next big thing in vaccines i mean obviously companies have to develop this together with yeah the different sectors so what is next I'm going to separate that into two questions. So obviously one critical issue is we would like vaccines against some diseases that we don't have vaccines for, HIV, malaria, TB, big killers. So um, that's something that can, can come on the vaccine side. But I think what's more exciting and relevant to this question of what role does industry play is the following. We're, we're now very good at rolling out new vaccines. We've done 430 vaccine launches in places like Somalia, Yemen, DRC, you know, Uganda. We're able to get vaccines out. 
The challenge is, is we don't get vaccines to every child. But of all the interventions, this is the one that is most widely distributed of all health interventions. About 90% of children on average have contact with the routine immunization system. That last 10% is the critical percentage. Why? If you don't have access to vaccines, you don't have access to any health interventions, which means not only are you, if you do get sick, but you are likely to have a bad outcome. If an epidemic starts in these communities, obviously it goes out of control. And two-thirds of zero-dose children are living in households below the poverty line. So if we can pivot to saying, take that last mile and make it first, then we can have a dramatic effect on development. Now, this is an opportunity because there's a reason why these children, these families have been left out. More and more, they used to be that Tuchel that was in the picture in the rural areas far out, but more and more, they're in urban slums. They're in uh, refugee camps or displaced people. They're in uh, migrants from climate change. And so the challenge is, how do we reach them? And we can't use the same mechanisms. So this is where innovation needs to occur. And that's not vaccine innovations, because we have the vaccines. It's supply chains innovations. It's, it's numerating these populations using digital technologies. It's new ways of delivering, like we're doing with drones. It's having a partnership that allows us to send reminders and and, and it's new ways of creating demand generation. Where are the best ideas? They're in industry. So those are the partnerships that we're developing that can make a dramatic difference and but make money. But let me follow up on that because you're saying the access is a challenge. Uh, obviously, it, it seems to be, but is there, I mean, can we scale up the, the vaccines, you know, forever? I heard you talk about something about the chicken eggs and what they have to do with the vaccines. Do we have enough chickens in the world to produce all the vaccines we need? Well, that relates to, actually, I, I did a TED talk on this. Actually, I think mm, it's a pretty yeah, funny line, be. but, but um, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. influenza vaccine, and that is made on chickens, which is kind of strange, given the fact that bird flu can kill the chickens if they get exposed. So, you know, there is a technological change needed to grow those vaccines in other media to innovate so, there. So it means that we need chicken eggs to make vaccines? Is so that, the flu or? vaccines mostly are made still on chicken eggs. That's been going okay. on for 50 years. The yield is some years very bad, one flu vaccine per egg. So as you can imagine, if you're trying to vaccinate the world's population and do it quickly, that's a challenge. Um, but those that will be sol solved. I have no doubt that science can solve that problem. The really interesting question is, if you're in an urban slum that's been set up um, or hasn't been set up, has just grown organically, how do you track and trace the populations there? And this is the next big business opportunity. Yes, it's a bottom of the pyramid business opportunity, but we're going to have 70% of the world living in urban centers by around 2030, 2035. So how do we adapt and 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 reach these families that'll be part of the process what do you think Maria? what do i think i think yes i agree very good points um and it's bottom line it's about uh, on the one side um, how the possibilities that we were talking about before the possibilities for business and on the other hand, we have the, the needs and the development, the sustainable development goals, and to have them meet, and especially in the global south, we need these partnerships, the strategic partnerships where we have the public, the private, and also the civil society. And if we add academia as well, uh, or yeah, then 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 it starts closing up uh, on something. And, and it's, uh, to begin with, I think we need to establish that trade in the long run is much better than aid, but we can com combine it uh, to get on the way. And uh, and it's very important for the businesses that go into these markets where the needs are very, very high, uh, but they're also many times very unstable. They're very unfavorable conditions for, for business, whether it's down to legislation, whether it's down to, uh, it can be corruption or it can be even sometimes it's it's conflict um, and it also can be volatile currencies. It can, it, it can be very many different things that make these uh, markets very unstable or unfavorable, unfavorable for businesses to come into. Uh, but we can mitigate that 
uh, through different mechanisms. We can mitigate that through um, the partnerships so that we can have uh, conditions where uh, all the new uh, technology, all the new possibilities that the businesses come up with can meet the needs of the people in these countries and yeah, especially in the I global I south. I mean, like uh, I said before, so uh, at least according to the latest uh, UN Global Compact report, and half of the opportunities will come in in, in low and middle-income countries. Yeah. So in a way, we could say that the developing country will develop the world. And if Norway is not part of that, then yeah. what is the, the role for Norwegian business? Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, in the um, health and vaccine areas, what, what do you see the role of Norwegian business? I mean, you were saying that obviously we need to have, uh, you know, the the frames. We need to have the trade. We can have Norwegian development policy support, uh, different kinds of guarantees, or Norwegian foreign policy on export, of course. But do we have a Norwegian industry that can, you know, that can uh, compete Absol for Gavi contracts, <laughs> yes. for example? Absolutely. I mean, we have both white papers and we have NHO reports and we have and we have the industry to prove that this is this is uh, something that we can do. We have a health industry and we have competitive advantage advantages to to develop that much further. Um, and that will also so and, and all of that is needed and there are markets out there. Uh, but then it's again to to make those two meet, and it's a so it's a dual dual relationship in that in that sense. And uh, but I, it's I think it's very well established by now that that the health industry will be a strong point for Norway in the years to come. Um, we have obviously other in huge industries as well that are very important in the sustainable development setting, whether it's food, whether it's in uh, energy, but also the health industry will be so important for Norway to develop in the future. And we have uh, strong possibilities and data is and data and technology are very um, huge parts of that. Can I give maybe some examples to make yeah. this uh, alive? So let me mm. give three different examples of different types of partnerships that are really interesting. So let me start with a partnership we're doing with Unilever in India. Unilever, um, their Lifebuoy division sells soap. They're interested in expanding their soap market. So what they want is families to use soap for hand washing. Seb, great, but you know, this is the same families that we want to have immunization. So how about if we work together on this? Now what's really interesting is they got their marketing teams together and they said, well, let's figure out what the best message is. We were doing things like giving families a bag of lentils if they immunize their children. Well, it turns out they came up with a concept that sounds so simple, but we would not have come up with, which is tell the parents, label the parents as good parents if they both do sanitation, but also take their children for vaccinations. Give them stickers, make them labeled. And it turns out that's a huge motivator. And so we've been able to, working with them to increase immunization coverage and increase demand, and they're selling more soap. This is a, this is, so that's at a very grassroots level. Let me give a, a second example. When we started working on drones, this was a technology that was a U.S. startup, and the, and the complexity, the thicket of regulatory decisions of trying to get approval in the U.S. was very hard. When we later on talked to investors, they said, why would we let a company work in Africa? We, you know, we'd fire that CEO. Well, turns out they went to Rwanda. They were able to set this up. They were able to test it and, and, and really work quickly to improve. And they were able to have a national delivery of initially blood. We started out with rabies vaccines. That's how we got involved with blood. They centralized the blood bank. They drove resistance to zero and, and stockouts to zero. And they now have anywhere in Rwanda, 20 minutes, you get blood delivered as much as you need for an emergency blood products, et cetera. So that's a second example. A third example, and I could give 10 of them, would Marit be- I wanted to come I'd, in there. I'd like to give some as well. Comment, right? yeah. I mean, the examples, are, that's the most inspiring thing, I think. Uh, so just to start with uh, one, which is related both to food and to health, for example, this is Phil fish health, but it's obviously also planet health and human health. Develops vaccines for fish farming facilities and has reduced or helped reduce antibiotic consumption by 90%. And we know that 
in the in fish farming in Norway today and antibiotics almost. So this is very important for the marine environment. Another example, which is both uh, health and <laughs> and very many other aspects and, and to do with humans. Jets vacuum provides vacuum toilets for refugee camps. And it's a closed vacuum toilet system and it's used by NGOs, governments, agencies and others who need to distribute safe hygienic toilets in a, in, in a fast way anywhere. Imagine the, the possibility. But this is, for, this is used in refugee camps now, but it can obviously be used in any other setting. And toilet facilities is something that's really, I mean, it's a huge need in huge parts of the world. One more example, Bright. Now we're on energy, but we're talking sustainability, so I think it's very important. It makes solar cell lamps both stationary and that can be mounted on, a, for example, a plastic bottle or whatever portable that, that can be used. And it can be used as light in the dark and solar, solar cell chargers for cell phones for the very poorest. So this is, this is part of creating development in the very mo mo most fundamental way. And they've supplied more than 2 million lamps for refugee camps and for humanitarian crisis. And among other things, Bright sells to the UN is, and is committed to sustainable production. And this is so, so we see that they come in in very typical public-private partnership situations where we have, for example, crisis situations or where it's related to, to aid. But all these products are also, it's, it's, it's core business, and it has markets that go way beyond. So we have blood, vaccine, soap, food, and lights for the the companies. Do you want it more? sounds like you know. It sounds like <laughs> it's just a one way forward, a highway to to 2030. Um, but then I would like to challenge you both of you because it's not like everybody loves vaccines, is it? Neither in the global north nor in the global south. Is there any opportunities in the the resistance against? Uh, uh, measles vaccines, for example. What do you think, uh, Seth? I mean, is, is it just something we need to get rid of? Or is there actually some potential for economic growth? I don't know. Well, I mean, as you know, the vaccine hesitancy is mostly in places that have seen the diseases completely disappear. So Due to vaccines. Right. So, so in, in the developing world where you still see disease, people, I mean, no parent wants their child to be disabled or die from a vaccine-preventable disease. It's only when you think it's gone and it's not a problem anymore and you don't remember it that you can move that way. So part of that is a technological solution because how's that information getting spread? It's getting spread by social media. So what we need to do is get a, a change in social media companies to do two things not only make sure that they have accurate information, but also when a mother is, is searching for information, she wants information. So it's not only getting rid of the bad news, but also making sure that they have access to good news. And, and we're beginning to see now social media companies change. And that's important because those so same social media companies are being accessed from the South because when they look for information, they come on and see the same crazy um, you know, fake news, if we want to call it that, about vaccines, and that can have an effect there as well. So this is something that can change. This is one of the questions I and the rest of the academic community when I was part of that. We were asking ourselves this uh, all the time. How can we deal with all this, call it fake information? Or how can we address echo chambers? How can we address... And I think the, the, the vaccine hesitancy is, is really an area where, where we need to come forward with facts, reliable information to make people understand uh, how this works. And, and, and it's really, I mean, when it comes to vaccines, it's really quite simple information needed, but it's, but it's, but it's meeting uh, the echo chambers and, and, it's, and it's, it meets an information setting that is really hard to, to beat. And one thing that's for sure is, and, and I, I, I want to address academia with this, they have to come forward and be much more active in the public debate with 
the facts and with the reliable information because this is some some this is a place where I think their credibility is highly needed. To, but, to but, this, but just to be clear, yeah. I mean there are now nefarious forces that are acting. So mm. Russian bots, the same ones that are, yeah. are in the elections, are passing information both positive and negative, with the idea being that you um, set up a situation where people have loss of confidence because of the misinformation that's spreading. We also see now people profiting because you can use these sites with wild stories to sell alternate medicine products. And so this is a problem. Companies are beginning to step up, but you know, one needs to either have the companies do it or we have to legislate them to do it. But is this something, I mean, it, let's just look at one myth because we all now sit on thinking, oh yes, in Nesodden they don't they don't take the vaccines. A typical example. I'm sure some of you thought about that. Sorry, I missed. I missed. Nesodden is a municipality outside of Oslo. Okay, sorry. I know everybody used that as an example. It's a local, local thing. It's a, it's a very local <laughs> yeah, example. Okay. But you know, it's there's also challenges in in the global north, right? Um, but Norway does pretty well. I mean, of, of all countries yeah, in the world, you do pretty well. And you know what? Nesodden also do pretty well. But people haven't checked the numbers lately. You know, Sanktonshavn is much worse. So, you know, this is very interesting, right? Like, you are now still thinking about Nesodden five years ago. That's not Nesodden of today. And that is a challenge with fake news in general. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we used to have this impression of, of the vaccine producers as well. So is that changing? Are, are they still as bad as we thought they were in the 1980s? Or are they? is it a fake news that, uh, that medical companies are not, that they don't want to do the best for the world? Right, because you came in, um, and uh, Gavi came in and sort of helped with the market share, right, on behalf of many countries. So you have a bigger muscle in discussions with the producers of different kinds of commodities. But how is that today? I mean, is it changing? Are they still the same, the vaccine producers, as in, in the 80s? Or no, we've we've dramatically changed that. So the the issue was that vaccines were too expensive, and one of the things you talk about is a, is a price point issue. The initial model was low volume, high cost vaccines. And that's what we changed. And we worked, we say, came to the companies and said, if we're going to buy vaccines for 60% of the world's children, can you scale up and can you turn this into a high volume, low cost model? That was one thing. But the second thing we did is we, because we created a stable marketplace, new manufacturers stepped in. So we've gone from five manufacturers when we started to 17 manufacturers. And those manufacturers have created a competitive, healthy marketplace that has allowed prices to drop, but also safety for vaccines, because if there's a problem in one company, you have other producers. I think that, you know, from my perspective, this is critical because we, we of course, don't um, this is not a charity. Every country pays for their vaccines. They pay a little bit and we subsidize it if they're very poor. But as they get wealthier, they pay more and more until they transition out of Gavi support. If the prices remained very, very high, for example, the 11 vaccines that WHO recommends cost about $1,300 in the U.S. They cost $27 now for Gavi. And so at $27, they are affordable for countries but not at $1,300. So this principle of having prices that are um, tiered for the different levels of economy is critical, and that's how we end up with sustainability. And, and industry has been our partner in this. They've worked with us all the way, and, um, and they're continuing. We have a, a new Ebola vaccine that we'll be taking in two weeks to the board um, to um, talk about um, opening a window for. We just rolled out on Monday a typhoid vaccine for antimicrobial resistance in Pakistan. So lots of new products are coming, and it's an exciting time. I'd like to to comment quite generally on this because I think we've uh, we've talked about partnerships and how important that is, and I'd also like to talk about public procurement and how important that is, uh, both to create the markets and in this case, for example, with the vaccines, it's been uh, crucial to actually um, have the market equal the accessibility to people that really need this. Uh, and through the, the right processes dealing with pro public procurement and where we, we spend a lot of money and, we, and sometimes we're also linked with aid, um, you can solve problems, you can push innovative approaches to, to solve problems such as sustainability goals and create markets and business opportunities and get things rolling. 
so I think this is, uh, is a way that the public can also engage in, in, in these kinds of, of issues. And that, that goes in the global south, but it also very much goes in, in the very national uh, setting that we have here, where, whether it's uh, elect, um, to push elect electrification or, or solving other, other uh, issues that we have. This is a win-win business yeah, story win -win. because if you increase the volume, the cost of each individual vaccine goes down. So you make more money in your primary markets, you make money in intermediate markets, and you make a teeny bit of money in Gavi markets, you're not losing money. So if you look out under that curve, you're in a better business case than you were if you didn't serve those markets. And, and it's getting that mindset out there that says to companies, let's get these life-saving products to everybody in the world, not just the people who can afford to pay the highest price for a short period of time. That's, that's the changing of mindset. And, and, you know, if you go to the vaccine companies, they want to see their products used. They, the, the things they love to have their staff talk about is, gee, look at the number of lives we're saving. Look at how, what a difference we're making in the world. So, you know, we're empowering them as well. Great to hear that some of the fake news are, are changing, right? Um, before we are bringing in the in the audience, because uh, we are bringing you in and we want you to ask some uh, some questions, of course, I have one last question for you, which is quite open, uh, and that is Norway has taken a very, you know, very clear role on global health and also on on immunization over time. But what is the next uh, next step for Norway? I mean, obviously, to continue supporting Gavi, I do understand that, and, and UNICEF and Save the Children and you know, everybody that works either directly or around the, uh, the topic. But what, what is the, I mean, what sort of role can Norway play? Um, so, so, I mean, first of all, I must say I'm, I, I miss Hans Rosling, who was a dear friend to, you know, Gavi and to the world. But one of the reasons he was so important is that you know, if you go out and ask, and he did, he asked Nobel laureates, he asked people at, you know, WEF, the state of the world, they don't know how much improvement is occurring. And so what's incredible about Norway as a relatively small country, but punching way above its weight in cost-effective interventions is that we're having a dramatic effect across the world. So just in the time that Gavi has existed, child mortality has reduced 50%, of which a substantial proportion is due to vaccines, not all of it. But, you know, the world, people are going out of poverty. The world is getting better. And this is going to be critical to sustainability. You're, if your children don't survive, you're going to have a lot more kids. And if we continue to have, obviously, large family size, that's terrible for, you know, all of the uh, issues of sustainability. So this is a dramatic effect. And we have to keep reminding the world that because you go out and people say, no, 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 things are terrible and everybody's corrupt and, you know, and everybody's poor. And, and, and you know, yes, there are horrible scenes on TV of the things that are bad. And we have to continue to work on those. But Overall, the world is getting better. And, and we've had 15 countries transition out of Gavi. We have another three by the end of 2020. We have another 10 in the next period. That'll mean 40% of the countries will have taken full self-financing of their vaccines that Norway paid for when they were really poor, but they've gotten richer. Of course, the countries that are left are the most fragile, the most difficult, and they are gonna take longer. But we, the world is moving on some aspects in the right direction. And some of the really large countries have already taken over the vaccine. That's it's correct. Like We're going India, to India in two weeks. Yeah. They're transitioning out. Indonesia's transitioned out. So we are seeing dramatic effects in these places. And India's gone from having coverage rates of 50%. They're approaching 90% coverage rates now. And the largest number of under-immunized kids used to be in India by far. Now Nigeria has the most, even though the population is one-fifth that of India. So these are really positive changes that are occurring. Norway has a huge challenge of its own, which is to transform our economy, our businesses for the future. We are heavily dependent on oil and gas at the moment. We will continue to be strong on that for many years to come, but we need other pillars to grow so, so that we can live from them in the future and future value creation and jobs. And health, food, these are huge opportunities for Norway. This is competitive advantages for Norway. And we need to make these areas grow. And we, make, we need to make them grow through international trade. We need to 
push for the globalization of this instead of protectionism, which is a strong trend that we're seeing. We need to work with this so that this can uh, also become an opportunity for the global south. If we work this right, it can become a win-win-win situation. It will need bold politicians, bold public sector, bold business leaders, and bold uh, civil society to make this happen. If I can just add one point to that, which is, you know, you're absolutely right, but, you know, the, for the people who believe in nationalism and closed borders and putting up walls, I mean, infectious diseases, there are no walls. Mosquitoes don't. They fly over the walls. A billion people a year sleep in other countries from where they were born. And, you know, I'll often have um, dinner in Nairobi, breakfast in London, lunch in New York, all within the incubation period of an infectious disease. So... The world already is globalized, so unless we go back to being tribal groups that live within 50 kilometers, um, this is something we have to deal with, and, and, and that, I think, is a message that the young need to bring out against the, the, you know, this idea of, of uh, closed borders, lack of trade, nationalism. And you're, of, of course, right, Seth, that, that, I mean, we've seen tremendous uh, you know, improvements since the 1990s. The, the, the humanity is healthier and richer and... But of course, we have the the, the climate change is issues, yep. uh, and it's interesting that uh, the Lancet is today launching in in Norwegian here in Norway. They are launching a report on, you know, the combination of health and climate, and you know, I mean, how are they interrelated? I guess that is a discussion for perhaps another um, podcast. Uh, let me now turn to the audience. Are there any questions? I think we have a question over over here. Hi, uh, my name is Joachim Henriksen. I'm corporate affairs manager at uh, at Pfizer. Is this working? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so based in Norway, so I'm not with the with the headquarters uh, division. Um, first, thank you for for taking this discussion, and thank you, Mr. Berkeley, for for being here in Oslo and discussing with us. Um, my question is is to you. Uh, Pfizer is one of those companies contributing with vaccines on the pneumococcal uh, vaccination program, and uh, I think. Uh, you, you made several very good points there today, but uh, two of the things you said that I think is especially precise is that, first of all, companies are proud of contributing uh, like this. Uh, people in Pfizer are aware of this contribution, and we would like to do more of it, which is also a part of the, the, the second point you made, that tiered pricing is, is that it's good for the, for, the, uh, for the global health, and it's good for the companies. It, it's a business opportunity. Uh, I would love to see my company be more aggressive on tiered pricing, uh, but in, in a kind of a broader picture, uh, a company like Pfizer, a global pharmaceutical company, how could we do better, do more to contribute to, to your agenda or to other global uh, agendas when it comes to global health, if you have an input on that? And just to finish, if you would also like to share with us your third example, because I think you were cut off at the second. I have 50 <laughs> examples, so it doesn't, I mean, I could add more. But um, on that point, and, and, and it's a really important point, I know Pfizer workers are really proud of what they've done here. And so it's part of the workers also putting pressure on the company to say, take that leap. Where's the problem? The problem is not in the companies. And let me give you an example. I know Merck is in the room as well. A number of years ago, Congress held a hearing and they called Merck and said, how come you sell the Merck, there was a measles vaccine, I think the, the amount was $30 in the U.S., but you sell the same vaccine for, I don't know, 20 cents in developing countries. And, and they answered and Congress said, fine. But they went back and they said, oh my God, this is, this is really risky. And it turns out it's that issue that scares the companies the most, which is, yes, they understand tiering. They can make more money and it serves a larger, Ramsey pricing is the economic theory behind that. It's the best way to get access and make money. The challenge is how do you protect your prices in your primary market. And, you know, if the politician says, oh, well, we want everybody to have Gabi prices, of course, there'll be no manufacturers. So that is, and that's a social conversation with societies to say, we have these private companies. We, we as a society chose to let them make drugs, not to do it. We could do it in the public sector, but private companies doing it, they have to make money. So they're going to charge. They have their own ways of charging. And, but if they want to charge, 
very little with very small margin in developing countries, that's okay. If that is allowed and we can move companies to doing that, then the ideal would be at the beginning of a new drug, a new vaccine, to have it available globally as soon as possible, not 20 years in wealthy countries and then trickling down to poor countries, maybe if they can afford it. I mean, this is, it's doable, but it requires that contract and it's very hard you know, in today's political environment, but even in previous ones, to get that type of commitment. So it has to be a societal value that says we care about the world. And that's what the SDGs are about, right? It's about leave no one behind. That doesn't mean, means Norwegians, but it also means people living in Somalia. So, you know, if we take it seriously, that's what we need to have is that global view. Thank you. And, and thank you, Dr. Berkeley, for coming again. It's, uh, it's great to have you come to Oslo, so happy to have you here. I have two questions for you, and one is kind of set by the pretext of the SDGs is where you ended. We've got 10 years left. It's not a lot of time. We spent five years defining the SDGs. We have 10 years to deliver on them, right? So I have two questions. One is, I'd love to hear some practical examples of how you work with companies and corporations. You know, maybe tell a little bit more about the matching fund or maybe about Infuse, which was launched in Davos in 2016. So that's one, one question. And the second, how do you get your messages across? And you're a great storyteller and you have great practical examples, but maybe talk a little bit more about that. Thank you so much for those questions. And I think that, you know, the challenge on the SDGs is that it's pretty broad. I mean, the MDGs, I could actually tell you what the MDGs were, but I can't run through the 169 um, individual goals, et cetera. And it covers everything. And so that is one of the challenges. So if we try to do everything, we do nothing. So when I think of the SDGs, I think about how can we make a difference to people across the world, but also how can we make a difference with others as well? Because it doesn't do any good to immunize a child and save their life, but then have that child die of malaria or have that child die of malnutrition. So the question is, is how do we link these things together? And Gavi is an alliance. So the way we've been thinking about this is how do we work to improve the supply chain? Our next period is going to be about zero-dose children, as I, as I mentioned. And when you build that system to reach the zero-dose child, that system is going to be used, that, that female health worker that is in that community is going to be providing other interventions, is going to be providing data that is going to be linking that into a system, and that has much broader potential than vaccines. But we, we measure vaccines because we want to make sure that we're really doing it and that we have a learning agenda. So where do the companies come in? The companies come in in that we put out as part of infused challenges. So the last infused challenge was, for example, bring us technologies, new ways of working in urban slums. How can we learn from any sector? It doesn't have to be health sector, but who has learned how to work in these informal, unbelievably fast-growing, non-systematic environments, no addresses, women working during the day, so how do you have clinics at night, how do you track people, et cetera? And, and then the idea is to try to get companies who are excited by those ideas. So some of the other examples, working with Orange in some of the most poorly covered areas in Cote d'Ivoire to create tracking of women after pregnancy to make sure they get delivered and the kids get vaccines. Working with MasterCard in Mauritania to build a data system that will allow us to, to track and trace populations. Working with Nextleaf to have cold chain monitoring of environmentally sound cold chain. Those are the types of inter inter interventions we're trying to do, innovations. And in doing that, we incentivize companies. We try to help make the introductions. We try to help um, make sure the risk is is minimal, but what we need is the companies to step forward and say, I have something interesting that could make a difference. And that's our challenge, is communicating that. We started out just with Davos and their communities, but we've tried to make it broader. So here in Norway, how do we get Norwegian companies to say, yes, we do see global as the next generation, and we can think beyond our sector into these ideas. You don't lose money doing this. You may not make a lot of money to start with, but where are the fastest growing markets in the world? It's in poor countries. So that's the sales pitch we have to do. And we're happy to be help, you know, help with this, but we can't do it alone. The matching fund, by the way, is many countries have now set up matching funds to encourage their own industry. Like you know, the UK did it first, said, 
UK companies, if you want to work with Gavi, pound for pound, we'll match the work you do um, with um, uh, government money to help encourage industry to take that step. And that's something that could be considered here. So, Maria, I want to ask you that question then. How do we see global as a new market, as Seth just said? I mean, these are the emerging markets. And uh, and uh, I think it's fair to say that that today we are more, more focused on the markets that are not as emerging <laughs> as these ones. So, so, so to have the right mechanisms and the right support also from our side and from the government's side to, to push uh, our businesses and, and create these opportunities and markets in, um, in these countries is an important um, thing for us to do. And we're currently thinking a lot about this as... Um, as also as the government is restructuring their whole, I don't know how to say, virkemiddelapparat. Tools and... Uh, well, all the mechanisms <laughs> to help mechanisms, businesses yeah. uh, from the startup to the scale-up to the to the. I mean, it's scary as a business to move into these places that are new and different. And what they need are partners, and that's where we can yes. help. And, and also I wanted to, to mention uh, one specific program that we have to... Um, it's a private sector development program that we have with uh, selected countries. Um, it's Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Tunisia, a range of countries. Uh, and it's funded by the Norwegian Agency for Development Co- Cooperation, NORAD, and also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And, and this is about collaborating with our sister organizations in these selected countries to improve the conditions for business and, organi- and also for organized working, which is an important uh, part of this organized working life. Um, so this is, the, I mean, we do commit to this and we do go into actual partnerships and try to, to make this happen. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Neil at the back there. Thank you very much. And it's really great to hear your work uh, at Gabi. Uh, it, um, it really moves the needle in global health. Um, one issue that I'm very concerned about in Norway is we talk a lot about conflict of interest. And, and not really synergy of interest that you do when you talk about how to work with industry globally. And I think it's, it's a huge issue here in Norway t- for our understanding how education and healthcare works. And I think this is more like a general political comment, but we need to do more information and talk to p- politicians and get better understanding of how the world really works and that education and healthcare is not provided by the governments and we need the industry to reach the 2030 goal. Uh, and I think NHO, you have a very important role to play, and all of us here, uh, when communicating with politicians, that we need to learn more of, of the Gavi model um, and to see how we could really help that uh, uh, to achieve our 2030 goal. Absolutely. I just say one word on conflict. Um, we often got criticized in the past because we work so closely with industry. And people said, well, that's a conflict. And we said, you know what? You can't do this without industry. And so we accept that there's a conflict, but we're completely transparent about it. You know, we everybody has to state the conflict. We minute it. We make people leave the room in the discussion. And therefore, you can work hand in glove with industry as long as it's not behind doors. And so this is, I think, our way of dealing with this. Hi, my name is uh, Frode Nakim. I'm uh, communications and uh, public affairs manager in Bayer. Um, we are a life science company, so we're working both with the crop science and the pharmaceuticals. Um, and I think th- the global solidarity perspective is really important here. I mean, it, uh, it's uh, necessary to see that. And uh, we want to give poorer countries access to all our products through equitable and affordable pricing. But then again, in this political environment we are living in right now, how do we create an environment where high-income countries like Norway are willing to pay more for these products to give access to the poorer countries? I think that's the big challenge. And you see in Norway now, the government, I mean, in the richest country in the world, are pushing prices very hard. We have uh, on pharmaceuticals one of the lowest prices in Western Europe, far lower than in the US. So this is a challenge, I mean, to, to, to make this work uh, globally. Have you any thoughts, of it, uh, thoughts on that? Well, well, first of all, it's really important to say that um, it's not like we're starting out with 
um, you know, prices that um, are any lower or any higher if you're not serving the developing world. So for me, you know, any company is going to put their products out in the West at the price they can get. And that battle is going to go on. Obviously, the company wants it as high as possible, and the government wants it as low as possible. And we can understand that with aging of populations and, and the increasing amount spent on health. If you go and now provide for a developing country at a much lower price, you actually may help your dynamics of pricing in the West because you go to much higher volumes, and that's a good thing for the company. It's not going to affect your pricing unless the government uses that as reference pricing. And that's what you have to do. So it's not, it's not saying don't fight for better pricing in Norway or better pricing in the U.S., et cetera. The issue is don't use Gavi as reference pricing for that battle. And the truth is, is you know, we provide different formulations and, and we buy um, for 60% of the world's kids, so it's a completely different economic model, et cetera. But I think that's, we don't have to ask them not to fight. I, I mean, I know you'd like them to not to fight on pricing, but they will continue to fight on pricing. It's, it's not having that as a reference price. And then companies have to have the courage then to say, we are going to have tiers, and this makes economic sense for us because frankly, we'll make some money across those tiers, and that might even help us if they squeeze the price and the highest market down a little bit more. We're still making money across the value chain. Hi, uh, my name is Katarina Bu. I work for the Think Tank Agenda. Um, I have a comment, and I hope it will end with a question. <laughs> um, I think if we look back since the development goals were created in 2005, the issue of public-private partnerships and innovative financing has kind of been the new buzzword for, well, now five years and even more so. Um, but if we look at the research, and for those who follow the Addis Ababa um, negotiations in 2015, uh, the World Bank before that uh, made a very influential report saying and talking about mil billions to trillions. But if we look at the numbers five years later, it's actually more billions to billions. Um, and if we look at public-private uh, public private partnership research that is still quite limited, uh, we also see that uh, some of these schemes have been not very cost-effective, and in some cases for some countries also more expensive than doing uh, the same thing um, publicly. Um, so I don't want to be kind of the party pooper to this <laughs> very intimate, uh, nice party, because I agree with everything you say about working together and, and you know, finding the new solutions. But it takes time, it seems, and we are not there yet where actually public money uh, work very well together with, uh, with the private companies. And, and many, many private companies, I've been to many of these events, we, we hear private uh, companies talking about wanting to be part of this, but if you look at actual implementation, actual money it's not that um, much and on top of that we see many many developing countries now actually uh, suffering from huge levels of debt um, you have countries like Kenya Zambia others spending more than uh, half of or, or almost half of their budgets on on paying back debt to also private loans and private companies so this is very complex issue um, so I guess my, my, my questions to Seth would be uh, you talk about this social contract, right, and how you work with government. Maybe you can touch a bit more uh, upon that. And what are, have you seen any bad examples? And what are the kind of the challenges on the ground when it comes to implementing what you want to, to see um, in terms of pricing, but also uh, distribution? Um, is it actually the government uh, and the governments that are, are kind of the... Um, uh, the break here, or are there other more structural issues? And and maybe to, to Mari, uh, if you could say something more about what are these mechanisms that you want to see more specifically concrete? Uh, have you, what are your discussions with the government when it comes to, to actually be part of this move and, and get the numbers higher than they are today? So if I start with your question, I don't think we can mix everything together. The reason a lot of these countries are in, in huge debt is, uh, first of all, in, to China and for big infrastructure projects that you could question the value of those. The stuff we're talking about, I think, is very cost effective. So let me just drill down to the health sector for a second. 
It is estimated that between 20 and 40 percent of the expenditures in the health sector now is wasted. So when we talk about more domestic money for health, that's a critical priority, but we also need more health for the money. And so it's about an allocative efficiency and improving things. And so as part of the SDG3 action plan that Norway has called for, Gavi, the Global Fund, World Bank are working together to try to work with governments to improve the efficiency of their spend. And that needs to be done across every sector because you know, if you don't do that, you'll end up spending a lot of money that is not value for money. And I think that's what we really have to pay attention here. Now, I can't obviously force country, countries or, you know, to, to um, uh, uh, say don't take loans from China. But if, if the loans to, are to build giant hospitals where 90% of the health benefit is actually coming from primary health care interventions, that's not good advice. And so one of the challenges is how do we get UN agencies, how do we get bilateral agencies to work with governments to make sure that they are doing the right things in a cost-effective manner. So I wouldn't mix all of these because you can engage with private sector and have it be very cost-effective, or you can engage with private sector and build white elephants that aren't very useful and, and um, do exactly what you said is drive up debt. Why do you also got the question? Yes, I think in those public-private partnerships and and uh, and uh, very clearly when it comes to the public procurement, you can be very demanding uh, when you do that uh, from the public sector. Uh, you can set the right goals, you can have the right criteria, and then you but then you need to let the market and let the businesses find the right solutions uh, to develop it so that it so that it also creates uh, a market and and that it it creates the business opportunity without picking the winners from from the from the start because this is something that can also drive innovation and drive new solutions and technology in a very efficient way so i think this this is something that we see in in all sectors, not not only related to health in the global south, but also in, related to finding new uh, sustainable solutions to energy problems, for example. And it's one of the ways that we are now seeing, for example, um, a high percentage of electrical ferries in Norway, for example, is through these kinds of mechanisms where we've worked very efficiently uh, with these, um, yeah, these partnerships and cooperations. And we don't partner with all the partners who step forward. We have partners step forward with a business idea, and it's just not a cost-effective idea. And as much as we'd like to have partnerships with business, it's got to start with meeting a threshold of, of cost-effectiveness that's critical for the country to sustain it, because everything we do is about equity and sustainability. And if it can't meet those criteria, we shouldn't be doing it. Right. I think Agreed. we have one last question here. Ah, hello, my name is Elmira Flem, and I'm medical director for vaccines at MSD Norway. Uh, thank you very much for um, this discussion. I appreciate the thoughts and the suggestions that come from different uh, speakers on, this, uh, on the stage today. So I guess one of the things that I wanted to share, and at MSD, at Merck, we're committed to providing our vaccines uh, to the difficult-to-reach populations. And I want to just give an example of one public-private partnership. It's our newly licensed Ebola vaccine, which is an, a precedent effort of how public and private collaboration can work. It has been developed with a fantastic speed. Uh, during the last largest outbreak of Ebola in 2014, we didn't have a vaccine. And now in 2019, just within five years, we have a highly effective vaccine that is already licensed and pre-qualified by WHO. And we're collaborating and committed to collaborating both with WHO, UNICEF, and Gavi in making this vaccine accessible to the countries that need that the most. But I want to go back to the initial challenge that you um, brought up in the beginning of this discussion, is how do we reach these children that are in very difficult locations? And I think it's not only the discussion about the vaccine delivery or immunization delivery and what we can do as a companies, as vaccine manufacturers. I think it is essentially a discussion about universal health coverage. And how do we get the essential healthcare interventions, which include immunizations, which include mosquito nets, et cetera, et cetera, to these difficult locations? Um, and I don't think it's only vaccine companies that can do something in this area. It truly needs to be an orchestrated effort of several actors on the ground and globally 
to have the infrastructure in those locations that are extremely difficult to access. Do you have any suggestions in terms of what we can do as a vaccine company to help us get those interventions in those locations? I mean, of course, this is not a simple, if it was a simple solution, it would have been done. But I think, you know, if, if I want to make the point, and I'll be very specific to your question. So um, immunization is the most widely distributed of all health interventions. So 90% of people are plugged into a routine system, 10% aren't. Those are the ones we want to reach for the reasons I articulated. If your Peter Sands and your malaria bed nets have gotten to 45% of people, you'd like to get it, let's say another 10%. Question is, do you go from 45 to 55, or do you go to the places that are most difficult? It's gonna cost more to go to the places that are more difficult, but if you get malaria when there's no healthcare system, you're more likely to die, and it also has the global public health issues. So the challenge is to pivot to trying to deal with these clinics. now. Why is it important to pick one area? We, we started off thinking, oh, we should build health systems that are important. Nobody disagrees with that except perhaps America, but that's a whole nother story. Um, yes, we should do that, but what we want is something that's measurable. We want to be able to know what we're doing works. So if we can create a measurement, a tool, an accountability framework to reach those families, then when, let's say another, let's say the EU wants to help this country and says, we, we're willing to build more clinics. Where do we build them? Do we build them in the president's home district? Or do we go where this metric has shown the greatest cluster of zero-dose children, urban poor live, and build them to bring services to them? That's what we'd like to do, is create a mantra that's shared among all the agencies that can allow us to direct of how to build those systems. But it's, you know, it's not going to be a trivial thing, but it's something we've shown we can reach every child with immunization. And by 2030, I truly believe we won't meet most of the SDGs, certainly not the health ones, but we can reach this one if we focus and try to do it. I guess those were the the last uh, famous words uh, from our two panelists. Um, before we're closing, I just want to, since we are UN Global Compact Norway, as we are quite new to all of you, so I just wanted to give you some numbers and some invitation, of course, uh, before we're leaving. Um, so uh, UN Global Compact, on the, in the global scale, we, are, we have around uh, 10,000 member companies. In Norway, we are... Uh, we were 118 when we started. Now we are close to 135, so we're quite proud of, proud of that. There is a lot of interest, basically, that's what I'm saying. And uh, and we're hoping also to team up with, I mean, many of those that are here already, already they are international and global uh, members, but we also hope to team up with you here in, in Norway. Uh, we are working on setting together groups and platforms of companies, and we are looking at one for in this area. Uh, as well as other areas like alternative fuel or one for the Arctic uh, and another one on health and food. Um, so we are very happy also to team up with other people here from the ministries, from from direct uh, from NORAD and others. Um, so if you want to stay on a bit and have a you know have a discussion, we are open for that, of course. Uh, and uh, do you want to say something? <laughs> yeah, I want to yes. say yeah. six final words. If you okay. Can. Yeah. Go ahead. Can um, I? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You can count. We all have to do more. Okay. That was the last favorite words. Thank you so much. Thank you.